Welcome to Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio with author, speaker, and your host, Pat Rulo, serving you a generous helping of everything you need to know to help you and your loved ones stay safe during any doctor or hospital visit. The program is not intended to replace medical advice from a licensed professional, but rather to encourage you to become a well-informed participant in your health and well-being. And now, your host, Pat Rulo. Hello, I'm Pat Rulo, your hostess and the voice for patient safety. Welcome back. I'm looking forward to our time together once again. I hope you had a good week. I know I had an interesting Saturday last week. I've told you before that we have rescued 11 feral cats and that our friend Paul from Claridon Barns in Chardon built a nice outdoor shed for them to keep them warm during the winter. Well, that morning I opened the door to feed them breakfast and no one was there. The bowls were on the floor, their Rubbermaid beds were thrown around, the heater was upside down, and there was blood on the table. I ran outside of the shed to call for them and only one eventually showed up, which is really unusual because typically they're all running around starving from the night before. Well, I waited for a while as it snowed on me in my pajamas, and I watched this lone cat run into the woods. So I followed her, and thank goodness I did. Sure enough, she led me to the other cats who were rallying around the bleeding one all covered in the snow. I saw a rope, something that looked like a rope, under the branches, and when I reached to pick him up, he ran. And that's when I saw that he had a bungee cord stuck inside his mouth. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the evening before, while carrying a big box from the car to the house, I tripped and fell and did some crazy painful damage to my foot. (laughs) So here I am, freezing, hobbling through the woods with a cane, no less, trying to catch this poor guy. And luckily, he finally gave up and let me pick him up. Thankfully, I was able to delicately remove the sharp cord from his mouth, and then we just sat in the garage, in the cold garage, hugging and purring for the next hour and a half. I am so amazed that the other end of that bungee cord didn't get stuck on a tree limb. That could have been devastating for that poor little guy. Well, what a morning for all of us, so uh, hopefully this week will be calmer. (laughs) Anyway, enough of my cat stories. Let's head into the show. Today's guest is a young teenager with a rare disease diagnosis who has used that to become quite the patient activist, working to improve the patient experience. So that is coming up. And then speaking of the patient experience, I have something quite surprising to share with you. So let's get started. Because right now it's time for the hospital hazard of the week. I read something stunning this week and I had to share A study, the first of its kind, held at Massachusetts General Hospital and published in Anesthesiology, the official journal of the American Society of Anesthesiologists, revealed that 50% of surgeries had medication issues. The first study to measure medication errors and adverse drug events immediately before, during, and right after a surgical procedure has found that some sort of a mistake or an adverse event occurred in one out of two surgeries. Oh, that's a whopping 50%. How do you like those chances? The study of more than 275 operations at Mass General Hospital 
also found that a third of the errors resulted in adverse drug events or harm to patients. Now, given that Massachusetts General is a national leader in patient safety and had already implemented approaches to improve safety in the operating room, these medication error rates are probably at least as high at many other hospitals. So why in the world would this be happening with such frequency? The article explains that while drug orders on inpatient floors go through a process in which they are checked several times by different providers, such as the ordering physician, the pharmacist, and the nurse who is administering the medications, the speed with which the condition of a patient in the operating room can change does not allow time for that sort of double or triple checking during a surgical procedure. From the time a provider took responsibility for a patient in the preoperative area until the patient arrived in the recovery room or intensive care, the observers documented every medication administration, including any medication errors. They also reviewed chart data from the hospital's anesthesia management system for all patients whose care had been observed. And overall, it was determined that 124 of the 277 observed operations included at least, at least, one medication error or adverse drug event, and almost 80% of those events were determined to have been preventable. The most frequently observed errors were mistakes in labeling, incorrect dosage, neglecting to treat a problem indicated by the patient's vital signs, and finally, documentation errors. Of all the observed adverse drug events and the medication errors that could have resulted in patient harm, 30% were considered significant, 69% serious, and only less than 2% life-threatening, and none were fatal. Medication errors and adverse drug events were more common with longer procedures, especially those lasting longer than six hours and involving 13 or more medication administrations. Hmm. So... After hearing this, what's the takeaway? Uh, stay out of the hospital if you can. But we all know that's not always possible. And you can't stay awake during a surgical procedure to ask questions, nor can you have an advocate with you. Although that could be the seed of an idea for a new, highly trained profession. An independent, highly trained, licensed in surgery patient advocate. Hmm. Just an idea. But really, what can a patient do to avoid being the one out of every two surgeries? I don't know. Maybe have a candid conversation about this prior to surgery with the surgical team. You could say, look, I know that a medication error is highly likely during my surgical procedure. What steps do you take to avoid this? And for sure, I'd have a little chat with your anesthesiologist and ask this question. Will you be with me the entire time before during and after my procedure? Because this kind of continuity of care does not always take place. And this is exactly, exactly what happened to my mom when she was having a heart attack for nine hours after shoulder surgery and the anesthesiologist was nowhere to be found on a timely basis. So here's what you need to know. And this is very important. In many hospitals, one physician anesthesiologist often supervises multiple cases that are staffed by nurse anesthetists. This model of care is called the anesthesia care team. Typically, the anesthesiologist makes rounds from one operating room to the next, checking on each case frequently. So it is very likely that your anesthesiologist may leave your operating room. Now, you have a right to be informed about the plan of care, so ask up front. Will a physician anesthesiologist be present 
for the entire case? Or will he or she be supervising more than one case? Will a physician anesthesiologist be involved at all? And that's a valid question because in California, for example, there is no requirement for a nurse anesthetist to be supervised by physicians or even to consult with a physician about patient care. Oh, and here's a real shocker, a little known fact, that in some hospitals, surgeons are allowed to run two or even three rooms simultaneously. It's called concurrency, kind of like double booking, overlapping surgeries, doing two or more surgeries at the same time. And I have to ask, are these doctors scrubbing before and after they jog from operating room to operating room? Sounds like an infection control nightmare to me. And does the patient know that their doctor is in two places at the same time? And what happens if the other patient has a complication and your surgeon spends more time in the other room? Where does that leave you? In anesthesia hell? All of this is very misleading and quite honestly, dangerous. Yet the patient has no idea what's going on. So why is this happening? Well, because patients don't know about it and therefore don't ask. Is it legal for a surgeon to say he or she did the operation and sign off on it for billing purposes, even if he or she was just in and out supervising a trainee? Is it legal for the anesthesiologist to introduce him or herself to you, giving you the false impression that he or she will actually be administering and monitoring your anesthesia when in fact he or she may only be supervising nurse anesthetists? This is shady stuff if you ask me. So next time you or someone you know is going under the knife, always ask your surgeon well ahead of your operation if he or she will be performing other surgeries at the same time as yours. And if you hear that this is the practice of your surgeon and you're not comfortable with it, well, you can discuss it with your surgeon or look for a qualified surgeon at other hospitals. When you sign the informed consent form, you should be signing a document that truly spells out the true details. And with that consent form in mind, you actually can write on your consent form that you do not want a trainee performing any parts of the surgery without direct in-person supervision of an attending surgeon and the same for the anesthesiologist. You know, I always love it when researchers conduct these studies, come up with shocking findings, and then conclude, well, at least we now have some idea as to where to try to make improvements. Uh, continuity of care might be a sensible place to start. Doctors and anesthesiologists running about from operating room to operating room, from patient to patient, from case to case, answering pages, having random conversations that have nothing to do with your specific surgery, is simply asking for trouble. And we don't need a survey or a study to figure out how to put an end to that. So I say, have a sit-down, one-on-one conversation with your surgical team prior to surgery so everyone is on the same page. And should something go wrong, at least you'll know where to start looking. After the show, be sure to visit the website, speakupandstayalive.com for more life-saving information. Plus, that's where you can purchase the book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, The Patient Advocate, Hospital Survival Guide. Bring the book to the hospital with you. It's the best way to stand out and in a positive way. And remember, we donate two handmade pillowcases to a local veteran's shelter for every book sold with your name on it as the donor. So for a mere $20, you benefit and so does some well-deserving warrior. 
Give a meaningful and useful gift that really says, I care. Give the gift of healthcare safety. Purchase the book, the patient safety logs, and throw in some of those icebreaker cards. It's a one-size-fits-all present that everybody needs. You can order online at speakupandstayalive.com, or you can request by email at speak at speakupandstayalive.com, or call me 440-725-5462. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest. Speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com. Hi, I'm Jana Panaritas, host of the AgeWise podcast. I lived with my mother for three years after my father died, and as her primary caregiver, I was often reluctant to take time for myself, just like this caregiver who was a guest on the podcast. It took me a long time to get to that point to say, it's okay if I pay the caregiver to stay with my husband while I go get a massage or while I go shopping, because I still have to take care of myself too. Eventually, I realized that filling my needs was just as important as filling my mother's needs. Please give yourself a break by tuning in to hear the stories of caregivers just like you and me. Listen to a brand new episode at speakuptalkradio.com. To learn more about the show, visit the AgeWise website. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z dot com. I think as a caregiver, you feel like you're so responsible for that person. And if you're not there, they're not going to be taken care of. Hi there, I'm Gina Murphy-Darling, the host of Mrs. Green's World, and I personally invite you to become a part of our movement. We show up every day to help create the change we wish to see because we care deeply about this great planet of ours. The guests I interview inspire ways of living that are healthy, sustainable, and socially just. We discuss real issues by leveraging experts and science to get trustworthy information. Please visit our website at mrsgreensworld.com to learn more and to become a part of our world. Are you in the market to purchase a home? Are you thinking of selling yours? Well, I've personally worked with the McCaskey team. Give them a call, 440-773-5542, or visit their website, mccaskeyteam.com, mccaskeyteam.com. I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, and today I have a special young lady whom I actually had the pleasure to meet in person a while back when both she and I were speakers at the Cleveland Clinic's Patient Experience Summit. And yes, my new friend has certainly had her share of patient experiences. She is Morgan Gleason. Her story begins when she was 11 years old and was diagnosed with a systemic autoimmune disease called juvenile dermatomyositis. The main symptoms are weak or painful muscles, skin rash, fatigue, and fever. This disease is very rare and only affects one to three in a million people per year. Morgan has been very active and quite vocal, expressing her thoughts on what is right and what is wrong with today's healthcare world, and that is exactly how I came to initially find her. I was doing some research for a show segment on alarm fatigue and how all of the beeping of alarms in a hospital setting can actually worsen the outcome for patients, not to mention jangling the nerves of the hospital staff. And that's when I came across a refreshing and honest YouTube video titled, Why Does Everything Beep? 
Morgan gave her candid opinion on hospital room alarms, which led me to another video of hers called I Am a Patient and I Need to Be Heard, which has received over 56,000 views. She interviewed with us a few years ago, but since then has done so much to improve the patient experience and patient safety that I felt it important to have her back again, this time to not only share her journey, but also to give some advice to other young people and their families who may also be going through difficult medical issues. So with that, let's hear from Morgan herself. Welcome to those radio kids in the show, Morgan. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. You are an inspiration for sure. Thank you. You are welcome. Well, let's start by sharing a bit of your journey and go back to when you were 11 years old, just prior to your diagnosis. How did you discover your diagnosis? So when I was diagnosed, I was 11. It was right after my sixth grade year. I had been a competitive cheerleader for about five years or so, and I used to be able to do flips and twists through the air, and I was really active and super strong, and I gradually got weaker and weaker to the point where I couldn't do any of my tumbling passes anymore, and I got to the point where my mom could hold a handstand longer than I could, <laughs> and I was also having a lot of trouble walking up the stairs, and I would fall asleep at the gym, which I never used to do. My nickname was the Energizer Bunny, mm -hmm. and I was getting, I had a rash on my hands and my joints, and my elbows and knees, and at first it started on my elbows and knees, and I thought it was just rug burn from the mat, but it developed into being on all of my joints, and when my mom finally realized that it was all, on all of my joints, she took me to the dermatologist, and that's when the dermatologist thought it was psoriasis, and they wanted to do a biopsy to get insurance to approve the treatment for psoriasis, mm -hmm. and when the biopsy came back, juvenile dermatomyositis, it was all shocking, and we didn't really know what to do. Sure, you, that's a huge bunch of words. You didn't even know what that meant. Yeah, we'd never heard of it. We didn't even know how to pronounce it. We didn't know how to spell it. It was a whole journey. Yeah, it's juvenile dermatomyositis. So once you were diagnosed with that, then what happened? Um, so the next step was I had to book an appointment with a pediatric rheumatologist, and I started getting a lot of tests, and such as a MRI and a, and some other, uh, a lot of labs. I had to take like 20 tubes of blood, and I had never been exposed to that, so that was really scary. Mm -hmm. I think I'd only gotten my blood drawn once when I was a little kid, yeah. and so all of a sudden I was having to give like all of these tests that was so strange and new, and it took three months to get an appointment with the rheumatologist. They said it was June 18th when I was diagnosed of 2010, and... They couldn't see me until September 30th, I think, was the date. And so my mom found an online message board where they, for people with my disease, it was called CareJM, and it's a group where people would give advice and we kind of talk about it and we have a conference every year. And it's really helpful for to have that support group. And so my mom posted on the message board, my daughter was just diagnosed and we're, we really don't know what to do. The rheumatologist said they couldn't see us for three months. And what would you guys suggest us doing? And so the board had somebody call within an hour of it being posted. Wow. And it ended up being that they there, there are three specialists. And the one that they recommended me go to was in Chicago. And she said, my mom emailed the person in Chicago. And within like an hour, I think the doctor emailed us back and said, we, we can see you on July 15th or something. And we'll see you then, and there wasn't any other option, it was just, we'll see you then, mm. and 
So we booked a flight to Chicago, and I, I was starting on prednisone and Celsept and a lot of steroids. That was basically what happened. Wow. So thankfully, you found that online message board, and that just gives a a shout out to reaching out to other people and, and finding a community to support, as you suggested. Yes, and that community has been extremely helpful, and I had never met anybody with my disease. I never, It's extremely rare, like only 3,000 kids in the United States have it, and so it was really helpful. Absolutely, and that's the point of this radio program, is to give that bit of support so everything you're saying today on this interview can help another person, another child, and another family realize that they are not alone. So I appreciate you being part of this community, the folks that you haven't even met yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, now let's let's talk about relationships because I would imagine that when you are diagnosed with something such as this, and then you're taking medications like prednisone that probably have some side effects, how did that at all affect your relationship with your friends, or did it? Um, it did definitely because. As I said before, I was a cheerleader, and most of all of my friends, I think all of them were from from that. And so once I was not able to do that anymore, once you kind of drift and you don't have that thing in common anymore, I didn't. I lost a lot of my friends. We just kind of drifted. Mm-hmm. And you obviously don't understand what it's like to have a chronic disease unless you have actually experienced it firsthand. I mean, we were in middle school, and I, the prednisone made my face blow up, mm-hmm. like call it moon face. So that was fun especially being in middle school. Oh, yeah. Um, and so my friends kind of didn't really understand what was going on. It was really different for them to be, to see me change. Like, I used to be super skinny, partially because the disease affected my GI system, and I would eat, like, two bites and not get hungry. So I was um, really skinny, and I was an athlete, and then I went to being super blown up. And it was just hard to keep friends, but I luckily found one really great friend in middle school, and she was really accepting, and she was super nice, and it was really great to have that one friend who really kind of supported me through the whole thing. And maybe all it takes is one person. Right. It, you really just need one person who's willing to be with you and understand you. And she even came to the hospital with me. Mm. for the. We had a science fair project or something to do, and so she came and sat with me in the hospital. And we FaceTimed with the class, and it was really great to have that that person be there. How awesome is that? That's going to be a lifelong friend. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which then takes me to family. Obviously, it changes the family relationship. Talk a little bit about that. Um, I have three step-siblings, and we were not exactly close, but we weren't like, like drift. I mean, we were close. So I think it was just hard for them. To, for me to now be like the center of attention, me have to go through all of these tests. And even if it's not for the like right kind of attention, like I was still getting more attention than them because of special circumstances, obviously. And so I think it was just hard on them, but they were really accepting about it. And they were, my stepbrother wore, he still to this day wears a Cure Jam bracelet. And it's really nice to have that support and then obviously my my parents were super great and my mom especially she comes to every treatment and I think my family was really worried about it and they came so they've my mom has come to all of the conferences and my grandparents came and it's been really great to have such a support supporting family throughout this whole thing well I've met your mom and she is an awesome lady and it's so nice now that you are really close and bonded and friends 
Yes, we're really close now. I could tell. I can tell. <laughs> Which is a good thing. Yes. Yeah. Well, here's a big question. What advice would you give to another person your age who has just received a life-altering diagnosis? I think I'm going to go a little bit cliche here, but just say be strong and try to learn everything you can about it. And just, you don't have to tell everybody, but sometimes it helps to let people know what's going on. And also, like I said before, find a bunch of other people who you can connect with, maybe somebody who has the same disease or whatever is going on with you. Maybe just find a bunch of people who understand and just be strong and keep your head up and keep being determined to get through it. Because me, I think it's definitely changed my life, but it, I think it's changed it for the better because through all of this, I'm able to help other people with their problems too and also being the patient experience and speaking at all these conferences. And honestly, I don't think I would take it back if I had, if I were given the option now. I think it's really made me mature as a person and grow. So I think it would just be good to be positive throughout, throughout it all and be optimistic and don't ever let yourself get down. Oh, beautiful, beautiful advice. And I like what you said right at the very beginning is to know all you can about your condition or your disease, because I think that kind of information is empowering to understand and, and understand the research and why you're taking the meds you are and be a part of that whole process. And I know you agree with that. Yes, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. And be an ambassador as you have become as well. But, yes, I think that's been really great for me. Oh, that's why I love you. <laughs> well, where can we learn more about you and what you do? And if another young person or family member would like to connect with you, where can they find you? How can they reach you? Um, you can reach me at my email, morgangleason at gmail.com or my website. I have a website also, morgangleason.com. Morgangleason.com. Morgan, what a pleasure and an inspiration and how wise of you to take a difficult experience and use it to improve the system and most importantly to help others to survive it. So I encourage those listening who are dealing with a health issue or know of a young person and their family who need some support to visit Morgan's website, morgangleason.com and it's M-O-R-G-A-N-G-L-E-A-S-O-N, morgangleason.com. I will have that on our website as well so folks can continue to find you. Morgan, thank you for all that you do, and we always wish you the very best. I love, I love talking to you. You're really awesome. So. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Speak Up and Stay Alive, Patient Safety Radio, and I am your hostess, Pat Rulo, the voice for patient safety. Once again, we covered a lot of territory today, and I hope you were inspired by our young guest. A terrifying health experience or diagnosis or anything negative that happens to us in life can often be turned around to be something positive, well, maybe not for us, but for others who can learn and find comfort or encouragement from our experience. So I hope that's the takeaway today. Be sure to come back next week. Same time, same place, but never the same information. In the meantime, head over to the website speakupandstayalive.com to get your very own copy of the book, Speak Up and Stay Alive, your hospital survival guide. You'll be glad you did. That's speakupandstayalive.com. Or call me and you can order by phone 440 
1-800-725-5462. And our speaking calendar is filling up. So invite me to speak today to your group, club, business, church, hospital, any type of an organization, as long as there's people, I'll be there. 440-725-5462. I look forward to meeting you and your group. Well, time to go. And I will see you again back here next week. Until then, I hope you have a healthy and a happy week, free from cats and bungee cords. I am Pat Rulo, and I am your guide to safe and successful healthcare and hospital encounters. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.